Tell me about this JAMA article that... Um... Um, now, this is really very interesting, and this um, paper has bounced on a raw nerve like nothing has your, for a while. Can I just so clarify, just in, bounced on your raw nerve or others? Well, based on the Twitter traffic, there is international commonality with the frustration so the on this reason, issue. The reason I ask is because so unusually I haven't been on Twitter very much this week, partly because I've been a bit sick. Yeah. And and I've been quite busy, so I haven't been there to see it. So I'm going to be listening like the listeners while you're filling me in. Yeah, so it is a JAMA surgery paper published this week, and it um, looked at 60,000 patients and their rate of surgical site infection. And there was a point in time in 2015 where an organization instituted sort of policy for perioperative attire, including wearing like these disposable gowns, um, disposable hats and beard, beard covers in, in sort of hospitals. It was a multi-center thing. And what they did is they looked at 30,000 patients before this policy was instituted and 30,000 patients after and looked at, well, did this actually prevent mm infection. And sure enough, as everyone knew, um, infection rate was the same in both groups. It was about 0.8%. But the problem is, is that instituting this policy, those second group of 30,000 people, when you when you evaluate the cost of those jackets, it was 2 million excess jackets, which cost $1.7 million. So US and if you added the Yep. It's US dollars. And if you add the beard covers and the hats, it was $2.1 million US, as well. And the thing is, there's previous, it's based on the sort of antiquated yeah, skin yeah. shedding idea. The problem is there's research that says, look, if you, if you compare, I don't know how they did this one, but if you compare a naked person with someone wearing scrubs, there's more you know, colony forming units on the person with scrubs. The idea is it's good. It's kind of like causing some reaction with your skin, kind of letting the bugs grow. So the idea that more coverings on you doesn't actually sort of make modern sense. And this has really annoyed people because they, um, I think they did a study of physicians and they said, they said, okay, after the 2015 guidelines were implemented, they said, well, who thinks this is going to make a difference? And amongst physicians, 96% said this is not going to make a difference, but they said it's definitely going to decrease morale and um, sure enough, wasting a lot of money. And then there's been um, another piece written talking about how we actually need to talk about how we develop policies in hospitals because, you know, things like this that are just implemented with not particularly great evidence behind them, it just pisses everybody off and um, people get frustrated and it, 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 it's, very, it's very damaging to relationships within hospitals and it costs a lot of money and the environment. I mean, imagine all those gowns. Just, uh, you know, in the pile at the end of the day and, in, in your and, change room and for nothing. So, uh, 
I'm agreeing with you about the raw nerve and I can hear your raw nerve um, has well and truly um, been hit this week. So based on your reading of the article and um, the Twitter traffic this week, like what, what has then happened in response? So given that they've found there is no benefit and there's significant cost and yeah. no one's factored in necessarily um, – you know, the fact that these are single use and, as you say, like that there's an impact on um, sustainability and, and so forth, um, have they then stopped doing that? Like have the organisations with these policies gone, well, yes. this study demonstrated this showed no benefit so we're not doing that? Because and, and to give you full context, the reason I ask is because in the US, you know, there is clear evidence that we should not be wearing white coats and in the US they're still wearing white coats. So, so are they yeah. actually changing practice in response to this evidence? So that's a really good question, one that I'm embarrassed to say I don't know the answer to yet. But I saw a tweet talking about the response of the organisation, which you know put these guidelines in. They've said, "Oh no, that's you've misrepresented us. That's not what we said in the you know." That's not what we said in the first place at all. So a little bit of sort of defensive commentary. Some people on Twitter have said, oh, we've been able to use this evidence to change the way we practice in our hospital. But I don't actually know in those hospitals if they've gone back to the um, – if they've yet gone back to previous practice. Because I know in Australia and New Zealand there's a lot of – talk, you know, because it's the name on hats thing. You know, when we talk about getting your, your name and your role on hat – hats in terms of people knowing who's in the operating theatre, particularly in an emergency situation, then the secondary part of that discussion always goes to, oh, but in my theatre, we're not allowed to have reusable hats. We're only allowed to have disposable hats. So this is kind of um, this is kind of an issue for a lot of operating units where people are told what to put on their heads with mm. some limited evidence. Certainly a thing that's been going on Twitter for, you know, Rob Hackett's patient safety thing a couple of years now. And um, people, it just, it, it sounds silly. It sounds like people shouldn't get upset about it because at the end of the day, it's just a thing on your head. But people get frustrated by having to just obey because it's well, policy. Think- you know, the policy should be trustworthy. It should be uh, you know, grounded in some sort of reasonableness or some sort of common sense or science. And, you know, it's just sometimes in the hospitals we just do things for no good reason because it's just always been done like that. Someone thought it would be a good idea. And then trying to change it just causes a lot of unnecessary aggravation. And we talk about, you know, wellness in the hospital and burnout and all the rest of it. I mean, these are adults. These are healthcare professionals. No nurse, no doctor, no wards person wants a patient to get a surgical site infection. Nobody does. So we would do anything we could to try and protect our patients. But this particular issue is harming everybody. And trying to get it under an individual use is virtually I'm just reading um, there's a commentary in JAMA Surgery that I've just opened from Paul Maggio and Mary Horn. 
yeah, they're the ones who are they're the ones who are saying things, things yeah. we and do. And so for the no title of the, comment, the, comment, the invited commentary is mandatory use of perioperative disposable jackets. Things we do for no good reason. Um, this is a really it's a really succinct, um, nice, short, sharp commentary with you know exactly kind of as you've just outlined, saying um, that this was actually that. Um, Aon recommendation and finding and that the study demonstrated it was both ineffective and costly, um, and that we can't afford to do things for no good reason. And I think, you know, realistically, this demonstrates one that um, data and evidence is absolutely powerful, but that equally we need to question things as clinicians. And if we think something is being done for no good reason, or because it's always been done that way, um, that you know, if we're, first of all, questioning things with the um, people that we work with and for and not getting anywhere, then we need to collect the data. And I just wonder if that's why this study was done in order, well, that's what it, in order that's to what it demonstrate. Like. And therefore that's yeah, really clever like. of the people that did this study. It's frustrating that they had to do this study in order to achieve that. Um, but equally it's really yeah. clever and I think it demonstrates that we need to ongoing question things um, and also, you know, kind of back it up with the with the science if we're not getting anywhere. And but the problem, Beck, is is that this this guideline, like many guidelines, were instituted with no evidence, and then the authors of the study have had to put all of this time and resource into just trying to stop this guideline that was causing harm instead of getting busy with something else. I mean, you talk to surgeons about this paper and they were like, well, of course it was going to make no difference. How was it going to make a difference? It doesn't make a difference. I think there's a couple of things on that. So it's really challenging in the world we currently live in in terms of how busy everybody is. Um, But I think it's absolutely an ethical imperative that we have more clinicians on some of these committees making decisions. And equally, that if we are handed a guideline or handed a recommendation, that we both question it and read it properly and ask, where is the evidence for this? And that if there is no evidence for it, that we challenge that or we go looking at the evidence, just like we said you know, if you see a paper, you read the whole paper, you don't just read the abstract. If someone quotes something at you, they need to be able to quote where it comes from, not just because we say so. And so I think it's, you know, and like you say, like it's terrible that they've had to do this study in order to prove that, but good on them for doing that. And I think what they've demonstrated in that is that, you know, as you say, that if we're if we are questioning things, you need a bloody you need a bloody good reason for, to be doing something and not just doing it for no good reason. Yeah. I, having said that, if you flip yeah. it around, I can't imagine that the people who wrote the guidelines did it just for the sake of doing it. There'll be there'll be a frame and a lens for why they have done that. And the question is, what information were they working on that they thought this was a good idea? So. Um, I think rather than just going, well, they've done this for no reason, yeah, okay, possibly, but it's come from somewhere. So where the hell did that come from? And, and again, I think the other thing for me that's really interesting is we know that wearing white coats and wearing ties and wearing lanyards and those sorts of things do increase infection. And yet, as I said, in the US, they are still wearing white coats and they think it's really unusual that we don't 
And I'm confused why that's still happening when there is evidence to demonstrate that that shouldn't be done. Well, it's an interesting thing that's come out on Twitter. Someone said to me, um, so what's the evidence of the full surgical scrub for doing a spinal injection? And I thought, oh, that's a fair point. And on the Twitter today, it's been very interesting. I love that in you Australia call it the Twitter. Every Zealand, time you call it the Twitter, right? I'm like, oh, it's like you've given it. It's like it's a, it's like it's a living, breathing thing. Everybody, I know you're on a roll, and this is a serious enough episode. But seriously, the Twitter, so, Twitter. But when I say the Twitter, no, I, I mean I, like you know, I love people. I love, you know. I love it. I just have to stop you and acknowledge. I love that you say the Twitter with your New Zealand accent. It just, you know, I feel all love and compassion. It's just, you know, I'm having, I'm having a Nisha moment. I'm having a love and compassion moment. So, um, so the Twitter tells me, well, I, I know. So in, in the UK and Australia and New Zealand, it is normal for anaesthetists, and I think our guidelines tell us to as well, to, you know, hat, mask, uh, sort of surgical scrub and gown when we do an intrathecal injection. You know, we do a spinal for, for an operation. Very normal. And, in fact, do it for epidurals too. But in North America, no. They just put sterile gloves on and put it in like that. You know, that's that's North America and Canada. That okay. is their routine. So are you and doing then, it? So are you doing something for no good reason? Like have you actually got evidence to back it up? Precisely. Precisely. Are we doing something well, for no that, good but, reason? But the answer, do we but the answer to that question is you don't know the answer to that and so therefore you've got to do the research around that and ask the question. And as somebody, you know, you and I have both worked in the UK and when I worked in the UK, I got there and I was I went to scrub for my first cesarean section and I tried to find a face mask and, like, I'm going to show my age now, but everybody has heard me say that anyway. Yes. Um, so this was back in 2002 and I tried to find a face mask yeah. and there wasn't one. And I was like, where are the face masks? Oh, we don't wear those. I was like, what are you talking about? And they're like, There's no evidence that yeah. it reduces um, yeah. infection. So there aren't yeah. any to save money. And I was like, I'm not wearing a face mask to reduce infection. I'm wearing a face mask to protect myself. And I, yeah, yeah. It's so and so, you know, I and I found it, it. I felt naked, you know, operating without a face mask. Um, and it's quite funny because occasionally in Australia, I won't wear a face mask. Um, depending, like if I've been asked to scrub in just to help out with a kind of minor thing that I'm supervising a junior for, and I'm just kind of holding something or watching over their shoulder, and I'll get pulled up and said, "Oh, you have to wear that for." infection reasons and 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 because I looked into it at the time when I was in the UK I'm able to say actually no this you know wearing the mask isn't really about infection control it's around protection for me yeah yeah it's interesting for spinals there's been a few cases of if you don't wear a mask um your upper respiratory tract and flora, flora can get in there so that's proven to be bad um, but when I start, when I did my very first spinal as a as an as a as a baby reg in um, Auckland, New Zealand, they were just doing putting sterile gloves on and doing it. And they said just you know don't touch anything. And some people say once you do a full sterile setup, you actually de you know you de-sterilize yourself inadvertently because the whole thing's a bigger faff. So um, and then you know they do that thing called you know rapid sequence spinal. 
um, trying to prevent general anaesthetics for cesarean, and that doesn't have a full gown and glove, and that's deemed to be, you know, fine. So, yeah, it is interesting. You know, you raise the question, are we doing things for no good reason, you know, pointing the finger at these policies? And then Twitter has, has, you know, turned it on me and said, well, hang on, you do a full surgical scrub for spinal, you know, you're using up all that additional gear and plastic. Uh, Are you doing that for a good reason? And I thought it was a very good question. I I think that ongoing, these are are questions we need to be asking. But as you say, um, in some capacity, it, you know, the dangers are that people are fairly burnt out and I think that they lose the capacity to question. And so I'm not suggesting that people are sheep or don't. Well, learn helplessness, you know, that term, learn yeah, helplessness. Well, I think there's a stage before that um, and, I, and I do think, <laughs> no, because I, I think it's a matter of getting on, getting on with what is important and I'm not suggesting these things aren't important but I think there comes a point in a busy mm. hospital when you're trying to manage service and training and everything else oh, that you've, so, got to, yeah. you've got to prioritise what you're prepared oh, yeah. to take on and what you aren't. But, but I think, again, anyway. that's why on these committees and guideline groups and all of that, there needs to be somebody there who is able to ask those questions and be heard because you could have people asking those questions but they're not heard. And yes. so... Yes, well, I think that's the problem that some people, you know, they, they get engaged in some meetings and they feel that they're not able to get their voice heard and they become disengaged And so quickly. I think this comes... You know, it's really yeah. interesting having this discussion, having not been on the Twitter all week and kind of part of the Twitter <laughs> conversations because for me it comes back to some of the other stuff we've been talking about, about um, a bit around social media and, and about use of resources and knowing what questions to ask and to how to responsibly um, access social media or digital resources and, and how to be a modern health professional with, you know, all this um, knowledge out there when we know that the doubling time next year is projected to be, you know, every 53 days, that you need to be able to question these things in a responsible way so that we are doing things for good reasons and that we are not having unnecessary guidelines. Because I think the guidelines are, the intention of the guidelines is good. The intention is to have standardised care um, and make things easier for us, but often... And many guidelines are very good. Yeah, many of them and many are of them good. are significantly Sorry. problematic. But, you know, the question is how does that happen? And I think in part it's one of these things of, well, who started the guideline that this happened in the first place? And not so much who, but, like, what information did they get that they either misinterpreted or didn't then get the full picture and and no one questioned it and ended up as a final guideline that then required a full study to demonstrate that it was ineffective and costly. Um, and so mm. it's a little bit about yeah. what we what can we do to prevent that ongoing. And that comes back, well, that I mean, comes back to having the safety to be able to ask questions um, and um, and challenge things, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the other issue with, you know, we're we're sort of cracking into infection control. Of course, infection control is important. And of course, the advances of infection control have been extraordinary in saving many people from getting infections and dying. That's absolutely true. But you just wonder in the sort of Greta Thunberg, you know, how dare you environment, is it time for hospitals, in addition to having an infection control committee, you know, should we have a sustainability committee as well? 
to try and well, find the balance because all these things yeah about so balance, it's really interesting right? and this is where you know there are some really cool moments in the past 18 months where my world um intersects with my sister's world um and so my sister um it has a master's of law um from harvard university um uh, you know. <laughs> your parents must be very disappointed well, with you know, the both she's of you the smart, she's the smart oh, one and um and so anyway so she and um and she specializes um in human rights law but it's a really interesting area of human rights law she did a lot of work on um business human rights and corporate social responsibility and where this gets really interesting is that a big chunk of the work in corporate social responsibility now um aside from in Australia, there's now the Modern Slavery Act. It's also around corporate social responsibility into a components of sustainability. And there's some really interesting intersections around, um, I guess, some of the climate change and corporate social responsibility stuff with modern slavery because when you look at supplies for hospitals, many of the products that we get in big hospitals have been made in low- and middle-income countries, and there is a risk that those products could have been made in the equivalent of sweatshops. And companies in Australia now are bound by the Modern Slavery Act, and that includes organisations that turn over a certain amount of money. And most big hospital networks will come under um, – come under that. And so that means having to do due diligence to demonstrate that you have checked your supply chain to be confident that you you have not facilitated modern slavery. And that, and that includes, you know, stuff like surgical gloves, surgical gowns, um, and all the other things that we get in a hospital. And so, you know, there's there are – and that doesn't even touch on some of the stuff around um, single use and um, some of the other – um, aspects that, that we're now talking about in terms of waste. But there's some other aspects that often you don't really think about working in a hospital, but I have, you know what, I've, you know, it's, it's been in the media, you know, the um, sweat shops involved in fast fashion and the, you know, the, you know, the factories in Bangladesh, I think there was one that burnt down and lots of workers died. Was it last oh, no, year or the year that before? Was, so that was I quite had, a while ago I, now I, and, and my sister, you know, that's a big part of how come my sister ended up involved in some of this work. Oh, there you go. So um, I have heard of that from a fashion point of view, but I've never heard about it or thought about it from a healthcare yeah, point and, of view. Yeah, and I think that that's where it gets super interesting um, and in terms of, uh, interesting and also challenging, I think, for hospital execs and what they're going to need to do about that. And But equally, um, for those of us working in hospitals, um, you know, and who are interested in human rights and health advocacy and sustainability and these other things. Now, that might actually make it harder for some organisations because if they are needing to do that due diligence and prove that and if any of the products are considered to be coming from that, then it might actually cost organisations more money. Having yes. And we know, you know, the public health system is, the need is huge and it's a huge um, problem to get everyone looked after with the, the budget yeah. issues yeah. already. Yeah. And I think 
anyway, it's a big, it's a, it's a big topic, and at some point maybe she will come on the podcast and discuss it with us. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'll have to ask her. Um, 